But with polysemy, so with ambiguity, there are multiple possible meanings, and you have to be sure which of the ones the person means. Right. With polysemy, you mean all of them, or yes. at least several of them at yes. once. And what this does is this allows you to say multiple things without separating them. You can talk about various as if you can if you can find the right uh, uh, polysemic phrase or sentence. Yeah. Uh, if you can find the right ones, then they cannot just express the right thing, but express it in the right way. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. Uh, I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with uh, Dr. Lee Braver. Dr. Lee Braver is professor of philosophy at the University of South Florida. His main interests are in continental philosophy, especially Heidegger and Foucault, Wittgenstein, realism, and, di and the dialogue between continental and analytic philosophy. He's the author of numerous books on both Wittgenstein and Heidegger, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have him here today to talk about how language shapes our world. Uh, Lee, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, so as we look at, you know, how does language shape our world? Uh, give us a little bit of what got you interested in philosophy and life's big questions. How, how was that journey for you personally? Well, uh, you know, in, in America, of course, we don't really get exposure to philosophy uh, in high school. Uh, but I always was very curious about it. it. Always seemed like the kind of thing that, that Gandalf did. Uh, <laughs> Want to know what it was like. So when I got into college, I took it right away. I took an intro class, and uh, and we read Fear and Trembling, and that was it. <laughs> it was it was uh, really an unfair contest. Once once I read that, you know, it was just uh, just kind of a lightning bolt. You know, uh, uh, I, I I didn't realize that you could think that way you know i had no idea that that was that was a way people could think and that people could do that for a living <laughs> that was pretty pretty stunning but but really i i never kind of uh made a decision to pursue it professionally i just every step of the way i just wanted more of it yeah you know it was just uh could never you know, never found my fill, never uh, got to a point where it was, uh, okay, I've had enough. Um, and, and even with individual thinkers and individual texts, uh, it's kind of one thing uh, I might talk about today is, uh, you know, this inexhaustibility of it. All, uh, all the things that I've seen other uh, than philosophy, <clears throat> you, you get through it and you get to the end, you get yes. to the bottom and there it is. And yeah. even though they make more money and, and uh, perhaps do more things, they are what they are. And there it is. And you got it. And, you know, and uh, philosophy just uh, just is endlessly fascinating. And it, it's it's seductive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I love that uh, my audience gets to hear someone express the, the love and joy of philosophy like that. Uh, that's what's that inexhaustibility, that continual growth. And there's no end to the light bulb moments to use that kind of right. regular phrase. And it's um, it's truly a remarkable thing. Uh, no, I'm, I'm writing this this book now. And uh, and, you know, I, I keep thinking, OK, now I figured it out. Now I got the idea. And then, yeah. you know, a couple months later, it's like, oh, I had no idea what I was talking about. And now I've got <laughs> it. Now I figured out it just. It's just remarkable. I mean, it, it feels like, even though it's a fairly narrow focus, yeah, it, it's just been, uh, I think more than anything else I've written, just this constant uh, Pandora's box of surprises. They just keep coming out and keep coming out of these totally new ways to think uh, mm -hmm. about things I've been thinking about for decades. Yeah. Uh, it's been, you know, the, it, it, it's for, for someone outside the field, it's silly to call it exhilarating because all I'm doing is standing there and typing and going, hmm, interesting, you know, but it's in my mind, you know, I'm catching fireworks in my mouth on a roller coaster and it's yeah. just this massive, you know, adventure. And uh, I agree, people don't talk about that enough. In scholarship, we tend to 
I don't know, we present ourselves rather neutered. Yeah. And uh, well, and you don't see the fireworks outside outside someone's head. Right. So like, right. If you just watch somebody and you haven't gone through all the conversations and you don't and people just get lost, then they don't. They're just like, it's just people talking, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Like once you understand and you like that, that whole idea of like the great conversation, like I if I if you read through people like Kant and Heidegger, like you're reading at the kind of the height of what humanity has to offer in terms of thinking. Right. Mm. I mean, and there are mm. other traditions, too. Absolutely. And they also are the height of conversation. But there's like there is that level of like if I'm reading this, understanding this, I'm contributing. And that's uh, it's an amazing thing. Uh, well, that's in fact, we, again, this is also something we might talk about, you know, yeah. for, for, for Heidegger. Um, you know, one of the ways he talks about artworks, for example, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to challenge traditional ontology. Traditional ontology, one of the basic ideas is that, you know, an object is just this spatially uh, limited, discrete thing. Yeah. Right? What he called presence at hand in his early work. Uh, and he wants to reject that. He wants to question that. He wants to be open to, to fundamentally different ways that we can conceive of, of, of entities. Um, and uh, uh, um, and you know when we when we talk about um, books, you know these aren't just static things sitting there. You know they are conversation partners. Mm. You know, they are an an event for him. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's also that for, for example, for a piece of music, in some sense, of course, it exists just on, uh, as written out, but in another sense, it doesn't exist until fully until it's played and even more so until it's heard. Heard. Yes. Yeah. And so you need all of those participants for it to be, or to come into being. And so the audience is helping birth it they are the midwives to the existence of the artwork and with philosophy the reader uh is doing that you know the, the thought isn't there until someone thinks it yeah yeah um the uh so and what we've kind of already started getting into it how does language shape our world and you've already alluded to the art piece of it you know i think of uh heidegger talking about um, the temple is set in the in the forest, and I think you know language is very similar. And I think that was part of his point. But uh, if you can address that, I know that's that's a big topic. So feel free to <laughs> uh, delete well, this it is the, you want. But this has been the fireworks that I've been working on. I'm writing in this book. Yeah, uh, I mean, let's go back to the to the piece of music. Yes. Okay. Uh, first of all, to describe it, we have to describe it as a piece of music. Mm as a discrete entity yes you know which implies continuity over time self-identity uh, discreteness when in fact uh, i think heidegger's right that it's a much better description of it to call it uh, an event a happening an occurrence right? um but secondly if we talk about the writer the performer the audience Simply to, to discuss these things, uh, language requires us to separate them. Yeah. Language requires us to talk about them as uh, discrete entities, right? And, and uh, one of the things that, that Heidegger talks about throughout his entire career from, from beginning to end uh, is I call it the Humpty Dumpty thesis. And the idea is if you're looking at a holistic phenomenon, yeah. And you break it apart in order then to look at the pieces and then you bring the pieces back together. You can never get that initial holism again. Mm. You, you can't get a whole by putting pieces together. Uh, it will always uh, be a combination of pieces. It'll always have the seams showing. Yes. Um, and so he, he does this a lot in the order of like being in the world. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, and he, and he's, and that's one of the hyphens in it. Yes. Yeah. It, it, that's totally about, um, yeah, even dealing, I, you know, I homeschool my four and six year old and there's so much of the world that they aren't dissecting. They're just accepting as given. And, uh, 
and that's part of the joy of being a parent is seeing the world fresh and and whole sure. but you'll never still have that whole you can only barely glimpse it through your children because as an adult everything gets pulled apart um, that's why we have the whole like you mentioned like uh kind of Descartes being a whipping boy for you know Heidegger and Wittgenstein and honestly most of 20th century philosophy right because yeah, no. the idea of breaking things apart to understanding them you lose something that's the analysis that he that he insists on for his method. I think I called him the Margaret Dumond yes. of philosophy, <laughs> um, Marx Brothers, because uh, I, I always like that image of him just being. I don't understand what's going. Why are these people saying these weird things? And, you know. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, for for Descartes, analysis is his proposed method. We break right. things down to the smallest pieces. And of course, analytic philosophy uh, took that name partially because they believe that's the way to to approach things. And this way yeah. science does it. You break the, uh, problems into the smallest pieces, yeah. you distribute them, uh, and then you bring them back together. And, and that works for some things, but it doesn't work for other things. Uh, continental philosophy has been far, far more holistic uh, in general. Um, and I have a lot more, I have a lot of sympathy with that. And one of the reasons why I find Wittgenstein so difficult to classify is that he's very much on the on the holistic side uh which is always so weird when i read analytic discussions of him because they here's an argument here's the private language argument <laughs> and i just think, don't think you can understand it at all without seeing it in the entire uh, philosophical investigations it's, it's very much of a, in, in there organically and they rip it out as if you can read it on its own and his one of his whole points is when you take something out of its context, it changes its meaning. Yes. But they're happy to do that too. And it's kind of <laughs> without a little self-worth. But anyway, uh, but, but I mean, I really do like analytic philosophy. I don't want to yeah, bash, yeah, it know, has its I, uses. I it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but, but, but so to go back, so, you know, th this idea of language as separating, uh, as casting, as... Uh, his presence at hand uh, in his in his early terminology, um, he he's he's trying very very hard to fight that throughout his, all of his work, you know, from early uh, all the way to the end. And the problem is, even in order to say this is what I'm fighting, you have to talk about it in this way. <laughs> yes, it's an incredibly difficult problem. Um, even. If you can get across the issue, how, how could you solve it? Yeah, what could possibly be a solution here? You know, and uh, uh, you can't invent an entirely new language because no one will understand you. Yeah, uh, which some people think. Well, there you go. That's what happened. You know, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, so he's he's really pushing against the strictures of grammar yeah um, trying to uh play with it and force it to do what he wants it to do and and draw out other possibilities from it and this is one of the reasons why he's so fascinated by poetry because poetry is a radically different way of using language uh than what we normally think of as philosophizing uh theoretical philosophizing uh, anyway and, and he's he's often says i mean at the end of one of his lecture series he says uh, i failed because this whole lecture series has been a series of assertions and propositions right um but i, I always think of, of beckett's line you know fail fail again fail better yeah uh all you can do is you, you just keep working and failing in a way that 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 suggests um failing so forward. i think Failing forward, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the, what I've been looking at lately is, uh, you know, what else could language do? Yeah. And the topic that I've been really fascinated with is uh, polysemy. Okay. This idea of language expressing multiple meanings uh, at once. So, uh, you know, it's a form of ambiguity, but of course, ambiguity is itself ambiguous. There are lots of different forms of it. Uh, usually, ambiguity is uh, uh, potentially confusing, right? And you have to disambiguate in order to know what someone's talking about. But with polysemy, 
so with ambiguity, there are multiple possible meanings, and you have to be sure which of the ones the person means. Right. With polysemy, you mean all of them, or yes. at least several of them at yes. once. And what this does is this allows you to say multiple things without separating them. You can talk about various as if you can if you can find the right uh, uh, polysemic phrase or sentence, yeah. which Heidegger just seems to be able to do. You know, by by sitting down, he just pulls them <laughs> out of his, his ears. It's just uh, uh, irritatingly easy for him. Uh, Derrida inherits this uh, uh, this capacity. Yeah, uh, if you can find the right ones then they cannot just express the right thing, but express it in the right way. Can you give us a, a, an example? I can. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, he has a, a bunch of them. Uh, so, so one of his best ones, I think, is the title of one of his lecture series. Uh, in German, it's Was heißt Denken. And it's translated as uh, what is called thinking. And the reason why I say the German is because it's ambiguous. Uh, and and we have the ambiguity in English, which is nice. It just doesn't quite get there with the proposition. So Heisen is call, and we have the meanings, the same meaning. So call means uh, to call to someone. Yes. It means to call someone or something forth. And it means to call something a name, right? to give it a, 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 a word. And those are and those map on to the German. It just almost never happens. I know. I was about but, to say. I was really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's it's really nice that we have that. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it does. We need to put in propositions in different places where you don't in German. So it isn't quite there, but but you get the the gist of it. Which someone reading is like, what does Heidegger mean by what is called thinking? And it's uh, he means all of those things. Well, so he he spends. Go ahead. Well, he, oh. he spends quite a bit of time unpacking this, about yes. a quarter of the of the book unpacking it. Um, and, and he and he says, you know, all of these meanings are important. And, and he lays out four of them. One is what has it traditionally meant? This thing, thinking, what is the, what's been called it? What is it, what is it now called? Uh, what calls forth thinking and what does keep thinking call to us? Um, or what calls us to think. And uh, he explores all of these at, at, at some length. And he ends up saying that the four different versions respond to each other. Mm. Right? They, they have this very intricate interrelationship uh, among themselves. Right? It's, not, it's not just pure chance. This is sort of the... There's a dangerous way to put it, but sort of the inherent kind of wisdom of language. Um, I was just about to so, ask. Oh, forgive me, but I was about to ask, does that tie to even like Wittgenstein's talks about that logic that exists in everyday language? Is that kind of that same similar idea? Well, it's it's tough to 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 I mean the problem is you have to sit down and explain what Wittgenstein means by that, yeah, which of course yeah. is extremely hard to understand, and then make the connections. Certainly not in the early work, not in Wittgenstein's early work. They mean very different things there. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but but in the late work, there's more overlap. Uh, though yeah, there's there's some overlap, I think. <laughs> All right, I'm just jumping to conclusions. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. That's just that's a whole other show. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so if we ask, you know, what is this thing that has traditionally been thinking? Uh, he, it's it's this kind of intentional, conscious, logical, rigorous uh, way to to find clarity, logical clarity, and it's and it's been the key to autonomy. For philosophers, right? I think in order to take control of myself, in order to take control of my life, in order to resist the forces that are on me, uh, that exert, try to exert control over me. Um, and of course, this really comes to a head with Kant, mm -hmm. for whom thinking simply is autonomy. And, and uh, uh, if anything is causing you to think something, you're not even really thinking, because a, a cause can't be a reason. Um, 
And <clears throat> that's what's traditionally been, been, been called uh, thinking. But if we start thinking about the other sense, uh, what calls thinking, what calls us to think, mm -hmm. just that way, just that question turns that view around. Yeah. And, and it makes us think of it in a different way, because now the question is, well, why did we start thinking in the first place? Why do we think about this instead of that? What uh, drew us forth into yeah. thinking? Um, why do we have in Kantian language, why do we have these concepts and these forms? Um, why do we have this drive towards autonomy? And whatever it is that, that you've been thinking, Heidegger wants to get kind of beneath that or before that and talk about where it came from. And of course, you can kind of do this ontically, say, well, this thing suggested it, well, it's just that, that thing suggested it. But of course, you have to get, you know, above that chain and talk about the entirety of thinking as a whole, that we are called into thinking. We are allowed to think, we are enabled to think. That the idea of thinking as under our control, as our creation, as our intentional action is absurd. When I think two plus two equals, I don't decide, ah, I shall answer that with four, right? The answer calls to me. Yeah. It just, it, four pops in my head. When I see uh, all, uh, all men are mortal, Socrates is immortal, uh, uh, oh, Socrates is a man, excuse me, therefore, right, I, I think uh, Socrates is immortal. Right? It, it's, it pulls me along. This is not an active process that I'm driving. I'm, I'm riding it. Yeah. It's calling me through the process. The reasons are pulling me through. I'm not reasoning. I'm being reasoned through it. And so the later, the second two uh, meanings of it uh, in change and inform the way we think of the first two meanings of it. And now we even think of the traditional sense as itself something that got called to us. Right? The sense of us in control and us in charge of our thinking was itself something that was suggested to us, that struck us as plausible, right? that, 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 that uh, came to, that we saw as reasonable. Right? All these very passive constructions, because that's the way he sees it. Mm. Uh, and so the, the, the calling to us uh, is, for him, what kind of uh, underlies and explains what has been called reason, what mm -hmm. we have called reason. Mm -hmm. And that is what we should be calling reason. And then you can, he can point to the very process that we just went through, where what we did was listen to language. We didn't uh, order our words to mean what we decided them to mean. We, 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 we looked at and we listened to and we, and we, uh, paid attention to these other senses rattling around in these words, uh, which is, again, you know, it is, it was calling these things to us. Right. And so the very process that we went through to get to this conception of reason was itself in line with that conception of reason, right? We, what we performed was what we learned and vice versa. Uh, so would a, another way of describing this is this is kind of the process of how presuppositions get baked into the language from the start. Well, I, I don't I don't think he wants to talk about uh, how this happened, how these meanings got into the words. Right. And that's kind of where I'm a little wary of connecting with 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 Wittgenstein. Um, hmm. It's uh, because then again, that that implies a sort of. Uh, explanatory comprehension of the whole process. Yeah. Whereas for him, you know, what we can grasp is always a matter of, of, of what we have, uh, uh, um, in, you know, uh, cognitive access to. And that's always going to be very limited. Because we're finite. It's, 
yeah, uh, this, this is what he thinks was, is the central lesson of the first critique is, is our finitude. Um, and, and this is what he called the first, in, in being time, our thrownness. We are thrown into this particular way of living. Uh, but in the later work, it's just being thrown into the clearing. It's being thrown into just being aware of anything at all, uh, as well as the particular uh, kind of awareness that we have, the way that, uh, awareness we have. So, you know, I, I think a very natural question is, well, how does the, how did this happen? How come these words have these these meanings that that have, do this 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 thing? And I think for him, that's just not a kind of question that we can get any satisfying me answer to. We can't get outside of language to explain it because you know, we uh, use language to explain the uh, for one thing yeah yeah uh is this uh kind of the theme that Gadamer, you know heidegger student will pick up with uh the historicity of our being right well it's it's very important for for historicity uh because he, he heidegger talks a lot about uh you know he's always going back and rereading the canon right and he has these weird violent readings of ooh heidegger you know and he says there over and over, he said there are these um, uh, hidden treasures in these canonical texts. Uh, so he goes back and he reads these books that we've been reading over and over and over and over again, and he finds all this new stuff in there. And people say, oh, well, that's not what so-and-so meant, and that's you know implausible and so on. But you know, one of the things that he that we're trying to do here when when we, you know see that think, thinking is calling to us and we see that language is kind of speaking to itself is uh reconceive subjectivity uh subjectivity and technology for him are very intertwined because it's all about control yeah right it's all about us being in charge us making the decisions us putting things in their place where we want them where it's convenient where it's usable where it's understandable and he wants us to let go of that. You know, it's it's, it's false. It's it leads to a terrible life. Uh, he didn't say this, but it's destroying the planet. Uh, it's just uh, there's so many, so many things wrong with it. And one of the things that we're doing when we're listening to language, when we're letting, when we're seeing how ideas occur to us, instead of us choosing them, what inspiration means. Uh, is that we're trying to see our relationship uh, to the world and to uh, thinking in a very different way and, and not as us in control. So when we look at these uh, historical texts, we look at Parmenides, a sentence by Parmenides. Uh, if you say, well, look, that's an illegitimate re reading because Parmenides didn't mean it, Number one, of course, how could you know that's a very difficult thing to ascertain. Uh, but number two, that means that Parmenides had full control over his words mm -hmm. and that they only can contain what he put into them. And that's the technological subject uh, conception of, of, of meaning. And, and, it, and it, the logical conclusion of it is a different meaning of Humpty Dumpty. Uh, where in 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 uh, in the actual uh, Lewis Carroll book, he makes up meanings for words, and he says, "Well, the word will mean whatever I want it to mean." And he says, uh, uh, "Alice says something," she, and he goes, "Well, that's glory for you." She's glory. What's glorious about that? And he says, "Oh, by glory, I mean a knockdown argument." <laughs> you, know, you can't mean that. You can't. Do, no, that's what I mean by the word. I don't know what other people mean by the word. That's what I mean. So it's like this conception of language as completely uh, pliable uh, as entirely an instrument exactly yes. and then she yes. says that over and over again right Go, going and back again to even, ties in technology yes i was just about to ask i mean like we we're uh we've referenced a couple times the question concerning technology by heidegger and that idea like everything you're talking about even with the planet uh with ourselves with language we're talking about for the process of quantification so that we can manipulate things easier, we cut off, we cut things out of context and we, we shave off rough corners of things, things that don't and fit ambiguities. The box. Yes. Um, which is where it's interesting. You're, you're talking about poly, uh, polysemy, 
Um, I'm probably saying that wrong, but the, uh, <laughs> I don't but, know. Yeah. <laughs> That makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I used to say Polly see me and then I give a paper and the people all looks funny. And so now I say listen to me. And, uh, as far as I can tell, yeah. both are, are acceptable. But. Yeah. What, what's great about uh, uh, Polysemy is that it's very, you like, it, it really flies in the face of a lot of this because you right. cannot get rid of the multiple meanings. Right. You have to accept them all at the same time. And right. while that's still possible to, quote unquote quantify i mean you'll still do violence to it it's much more difficult and it doesn't it's one of those kind of openings into uh into inspiration if that if that almost makes sense where you can well, you see, can see a little bit more go ahead so you say you can still kind of quantify it except parmenides and there's a huge thing with derrida uh parmenides could not have known what heidegger would have made of it Right, right. And so, and, and if Heidegger does this basic thing, which Derrida also insists on, which is uh, uh, um, finding the meanings in the words. Yes. A fidelity to the text, which whatever people say he does, both of them do. Yeah. Then those words mean that. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a matter of Parmenides meaning, it's a matter of the words saying it, because that's what we have. Yeah. And so, uh, but that also means, of course, that Heidegger's reading of Parmenides contains senses that he can't predict. Yeah. That he doesn't know what they will mean. Yeah. And so there is a, 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 an in principle unquantifiability, an, an unlimitability to it. You well, know, Derrida has this wonderful. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that's, I mean, that's full circle back to uh, you talking about the fireworks and then the inaccessibility exactly. of, of philosophy. That's where it is. Is it's a continual exactly. dialogue? Yeah, but continue about Derrida. Yeah, right. I, I I mentioned when we were talking about that that it's kind of tied into what we were talking about. Absolutely. Uh, but um, so Derrida has this wonderful phrase, and uh, uh, the more I read him, the more not systematic he is, but the more like he's got a lot of pieces. And they all do kind of kind of fit together, and yeah. uh, he's not just a reader. He really has a full way of looking at everything and, and temporality is very important in his work, which takes a long time to see for, for mm. me to see anyway. And one of his, you know, uh, uh, Heidegger says, for instance, the big in time, uh, this notion of serial moment after moment doesn't fit existence, doesn't fit the way we live. Uh, so we need a whole different notion of temporality from, well, Derrida says we need a different uh, notion of temporality for texts that they have a different kind of reality uh, than the serial minute, minute, minute. Uh, and, they're, and they have a different kind of temporality than we're, than we're used to talking about. And his expression for that is the um, future anterior. That's the tense. And what that is, is the you know, future, uh, but the anterior is the before. So it's the will have been tense. And so what he says is, uh, you never know what your words will have meant. Right? So it's yeah. the future because they will mean it when someone reads them that way. Yeah. But that isn't unrelated to me because they, if someone can convincingly show that the word, the words say that, then the words did mean that. And if I said it, there's some sense in which I have meant it, but I didn't know that I meant it. And so again, we're demoting the uh, modern subject. We're, we're showing that the subject is uh, part of a process, not the, the origin and, and master of it. It's not that the, the, the subject has nothing to do with it, of course, that's, that's absurd. But I mean, this is what Heidegger does actually in the beginning of, of the question concerning technology, which is very, very easy to miss, where he does a brief discussion of Aristotle's four causes. Um, and his point is that, you know, after, uh, with, 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 um, the medieval discussion of God, God became the efficient cause that really absorbed everything else. And then with early modern humans took over that role, but it's a much better description to talk about all four causes as interacting with each other. Uh, and this is the notion of thinking and speaking that I think he wants to put forward is us as part 
of a process, except as we started with, that's too separating. Right? That's, that's the problem with it. And so by talking about it poly poly uh, polysemically, he's able to express it uh, with, without breaking it apart and demonstrate what he's talking about in what he's saying. Which is why my question about does this show how presuppositions get baked into language is still that pulling apart. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, really good. Thank you so much. Um, do you have any more comments on that? Or I have a, another question. I've got a book. Of, yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, do you have a, I mean, not to put any pressure on you, but do you have an end date for that? Do you have a publication date? I have had several end dates <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they have not ended. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, you know, like I said, I just, every time I think I've got a handle on it, I just yeah. discover this whole new, it's like digging and then you think you got the bottom and oh no, there's all these amazing uh, uh, artifacts and skeletons and pottery shards underneath that. And now I have to look at those and, uh, but I'm, I'm really, really hoping I'm on my final revision now. Uh, you know, maybe i'll submit it by the end of the summer uh, but i do have a paper that summarizes some of this that's mm -hmm. going to come out in review of metaphysics next year okay and what was what's the title of the paper and do you have a title for the book yet the title of the paper is how to say the same thing uh or how to say the same i forget which it is now uh heidegger polysemy and later heidegger maybe uh because he uses this word same to express this kind of relationship, which I, we didn't quite get into that um, because we don't have a word for the relationship between, for instance, the, the meanings, the multiple meanings. Right. right? Because if we talk about them as multiple already, we're separating them too much. Yeah. You know, uh, if we, we talk about, you know, uh, Dasein has an internal connection to the world, well, now we've Dasein and world are too separated to actually have that internal connection in, in our language. And so one of the, the words that he uses starting in the, in the fifties is same. He gets that from uh, Parmenides uh, thinking and being are the same. So for the way he reads that is the way that we started off with a piece of music. Yeah. Right. The, the listening and the performing are the same because they all are integral parts of the event of the music the event of the music is this holistic unified entity uh, event uh and then if we if we kind of stop it and analyze it literally analyze it then uh, like precipitates we can take out the player and the audience and the instrument and stuff like that um but they they don't have that relationship uh when they're in the playing and the word he uses there is the same for that, which is, I used to think was really annoying, uh, but I've come to, to see, yeah, well, there's no better word for it. Well, what else is he going to say? Yeah. Right. The, exactly. Uh, I feel like uh, kind of floating around, uh, aside, like alongside this conversation is, you know, we've mentioned Derrida, but uh, I mean, that's kind of the point of deconstruction is that when you separate things, they're often done in contrast to each other. And so then the mm -hmm. whole idea of deconstruction is to pull apart those binaries and like fall back down and see it as a whole again. Is that, is that, are we, am I, am I thinking the right direction there? Is that, is, does that kind of float alongside this current discussion? Well, I mean, I, I've got a, I'm going to have a chapter on, on Derrida in it. Cause I think it's really, this really brings them to as much as they are read together, this brings them even closer together uh, uh, than usual. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the binary, uh, for, for Derrida, the most important thing about the binary is the, is the hierarchical evaluation. He's more focused on that than their separation. Yeah. Um, whereas for Heidegger, the separation is really important. Uh, the hierarchy comes in primarily in the question of the subject. Yes. Uh, because yeah. we always put the subject on top. Um, the much internal like the... things. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, well, the internal things like male over female, Heidegger couldn't couldn't care less about stuff like that. You know? Right. But that kind of goes back to, uh, is there a connection between a uh, question concerning technology with having like even the author over a text? 
And so Derrida kind of sees that as hierarchical. And I think even uh, Heidegger says it's inappropriate for uh, the subject to be masterful over these objects. They're all part of the same process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very important for Derrida to uh, reduce the subject's uh, mastery over the text. It, it, I mean, he says, this is one of the, the most important things he says. He says, the reason why he wants to say writing is before speech or speech is writing is because the point about writing is that it has an integral as part of its definition is that it operates in the absence of the author. Right? Uh, if a writing, if a piece of writing requires the author to be there, then it's not operating the way it should be. I mean, but it's the purpose of it, of course, generally, usually is so that I can send it off to someone or even for my, to myself in the future to write a note for myself. Uh, but even regardless of the purpose, that's, that's part of what uh, writing has to be. And then he thinks that's just true of all language, that all language has to be intelligible uh, without being kind of animated by uh, the speaker or, or the writer. And once you have that, then there's no longer the author authority. There's no longer the author as the one who knows what it means and can tell you what that means, the source uh, and control of all the, the meaning of it. And then the reader is just as much in uh, determiner of the meaning of it as the author. It's, it, be, it takes on its own life uh, and, uh, 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 and anyone, can, can read it. I mean, Heidegger has this wonderful line. I think it's one of the few witty things he ever said, uh, where he says, um, you know, I have this violent interpretation of Kant. Well, there is no Kant in himself, which is, which is really funny uh, yeah. because he's comparing hermeneutics, the reading of texts, to Kant's metaphysics, the idea that there's this noumenal something outside of our experience, our phenomenal experience of it. He's saying, well, you know, he rejects that, of course, with phenomenology, but he also rejects it in terms of reading. There's no text in itself. There's just the readings of the text. And if they change, then, then the meaning changes. There's just nothing that we can say, oh, it has betrayed the true meaning. You know, all we can, we, the one thing we can do is we can say, well, the words don't support that reading. There, that's a court of sort of objectivity. Uh, yeah. that not anything goes stupid crap. Um, but, but there is no single, you know, there is no just capital T truth to what texts mean. Because they're more of an event than an artifact. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Mm -hmm. And they're an event that occur, reoccurs in every reading. Yes. Yeah. Because it changes. I mean, and I think everyone uh, listening to this can understand, like, if you reread a book, Right. It always changes because, uh, um, and this is coming from, I, I did a good amount of work in Gautamer, but like the idea that like works of art uh, are made in one place and then displayed in one, and now we put them in museums. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a totally different experience between mm -hmm. being in the workshop, being in the home of a really, you know, uh, rich nobleman or being in a museum, right? And like, it means something different in each case. You know, mm -hmm. one is a-, a It is something symbol. different. Yes, yes. Um, one is a status symbol, you know, in the case of like the, mm -hmm. the wealthy nobleman, one is the, like a work of art for the artist. And then you have like this kind of heritage national treasure now, you know, and mm -hmm. that, that's even that is very <laughs> simplistic, but in each case it, it's, it's changing as it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, and one of the things that, that, that they're not kind of sometimes points to that I always play up in class is uh, you know, this is, this is, we all believe this, you know, yeah. every year there are new books on Moby Dick, on, on Plato, on Aristotle. If, if, if they were, you know, if they had a single meaning, we would have found it yeah. and someone would have read it. There it is. And there would be no more scholarship, but thank God for all these people who publish and perish. Uh, they could keep churning stuff out that's grounded into the text yeah. and yet says something completely new about it. That's how scholarship works. Yes. Yeah. It's just and absurd I, to think anything else. Yeah. I, yeah, it's good. But that's, in, sorry, one last thing. No, that's no, no, enabled no. by polysemy. That's yes. why I think this word is so important too. So go ahead. 
No, no, it's that's awesome. Um, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to uh steal too much of it, but I did want to ask, uh, because this is something you know, I'm a digital marketer uh, for a day job, and uh, did my master's uh, focusing on Heidegger and Gadamer, and then I'm living in this world of the internet. Do you see anything fundamentally different about what the internet is doing in terms of context, in terms of, you know, even fusion of horizons, but just how, uh, cause you know, we've talked about philosophy of language and we've used kind of a loose definition of like, you know, expression and communication. Is there something fundamentally different about in the internet and the way that it, it's, uh, that even the context is almost flattened? Well, you could also say, uh, that, that, D digital uh, uh, medium uh, enables recontextualization so easily. Yes, uh, that it's um, in a way it's it's actually conducive to to these ideas, right? Uh, that it, it really uh, helps us not think of this is what this means, this is what that means. Because we, you know, memes and so on, we, we just constantly <laughs> see yes. new ways of using the same picture, the same phrase. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the creativity challenge of, uh, of, of this generation. Uh, I think of the generational, because yeah. uh, my kids do it. Uh, and it's incredibly creative. I mean, I had no idea so many people were so creative. It's one of the wonderful things that's been opened up by this medium uh, because, you know, when I was a kid, you had three channels and you were a completely passive absorber of it unless you were one of the few people who made content. But now everyone gets to make content and, and it's good. There's a lot of just really funny, interesting stuff that's done uh, very widely distributed. But but my point is that, I'll, you know, uh, a lot of the this is very in, in line with postmodern aesthetics, a lot of the. Uh, work is this is this blurring of the line between creation and reusing, yeah. uh, between copying and creating. It's uh, and and that's, you know, again, when 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 Heidegger gives one of these readings, the question, is that right? Is that what was meant? Is that the real meaning? These are questions we sh we're we're trying to recognize as un uh, inappropriate, and I think that those. Those ways of treating media uh, help uh, wean us off those ideas. Obviously, with memes, because the author of memes don't care that they're the authors. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. You're right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. like they they send it out, and if it gets reused, they're they're happy, even though they are anonymous. It's it's this kind of gift to the community, and it's it is very much a process. It just keeps evolving, and they go off in different ways. And or how about this? Uh, I mean, a lot of the memes are like stills from movies from the 80s or so. Yes. <laughs> who created that? Was it the movie? Yeah. Or was it the person who took the still and and then turned into a meme? Where was the creation of this? I mean, it's distributed. Yeah. You know, there's no single uh, artist creator. We're, we're, we're getting very far away from the romantic genius notion. Yes. Of the ex nihilo uh, Beethoven creator. Yes. Yeah. I, it's and it's absolutely fascinating to me, you know, um, slightly off topic, but I want to bring it back. Like my six year old when he was three, he's like, hey, dad, the TV's broken because we're at my grandparents house and a commercial <laughs> came on. He didn't know what he didn't know. You know, he was like and uh, and they all I, one of the things I have to do is turn off the mic on our Google home because they will just like talk to Google. And uh -huh. I use uh -huh. that as examples of. um. I have lived uh, through a time where we're seeing like the, the modernist subject kind of being uh, dissected and torn apart itself. And I just, I'm very curious to see what it's like. Cause for me, I remember getting my first computer. I remember like the idea to me, even of like talking to a computer is still like science fiction. And oh yeah. My three-year-old it's what he'll always know. And so I'm yep. really, yep. I mean, I'm curious. And I think the internet has basically, I mean, you know, I, it, you can't get rid of his, uh, historicity completely. Right. But that idea of like the subject, it'd be really interesting to see, uh, how this generation that has not only lived with computers, that was one step, but has lived with the internet will perceive authorship. And, you know, to, to talk about things like Alexa and Google, I mean, these are, 
quasi subjects. You know, we're not at the point of an AI, which could just be another subject, but we're because of the the liminal in-betweenness, it it takes away from the idea that it's this bivalent thing, either you are a subject or you're not. And it just it just uh, tears down the the notion that this has a meaning. You know, instead it is more Wittgenstein, and it's just something that we apply depending on the circumstances. Um, uh, uh, another thought I yeah. forget now. Oh, I grew up very much with that romantic genius idea. That's the way, like it was. You know, people had us read biographies and all that sort of mm -hmm. thing. And it's funny how it, it threatened me at first, but then I just, like, you know, I'm like, okay, I've read Heidegger and I've read Wittgenstein. I should know better, right? Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, Netflix by bots. I don't know if you've heard of that. But so Netflix took AI and fed them a bunch of scripts and they made little five minute films based on scripts from uh, created by AI. And, huh. it, there, and it's like, I was like, I want to write my own uh, novel someday. And I was like, Oh, that doesn't count. You know what I mean? I wanted to be yep. frustrated with that. Yep. And then yep. I just realized, oh, that's just like that's leftover historical baggage. Right. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a, a a program. I forget. I think it might have been Google because they're so far advanced in AI. <laughs> yeah. And it's able to write uh, newspaper articles and um, uh, a lot of different genres in a way that you can't tell them. I mean, the Turing test, you can't tell the difference. Right. It's oh, the gotten Turing that test. good now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's been dead for a long time. Like they, not oh, yeah. dead, but yeah. like they figured it out. Yeah. It's really incredible. Um, Dr. Braver, uh, Lee, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. If you could leave our audience with one, uh, <laughs> maybe not summary, but if there was one thing that you, one takeaway you'd want for them today, what would it be? Ooh, uh, buy my books. <laughs> hey, that's great. Uh, can't go wrong there. I mean, that's uh, kind of the whole point of this is not uh, the whole point of chasing Leviathan is that we are pursuing truth, but we can't ever catch it. So yeah. Yeah. Um, buy Dr. Braver's books and learn more. Uh, engage in the fireworks. The yeah. <laughs> yes, engage in the fireworks. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, really appreciate well, thanks it. Thanks for having me.